I'll start you out with this. Uh, the events of this week tell us loudly that God's commitment to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. Right? Come on now. That ought to be good news to most of you because I know most of you. And most of you mess it up like this guy. And so I'm really, I'm really happy about this, that God is really able to take my mess and clean it up better than I can actually, bigger so than I can even mess it up. So man, I'm thankful that each of you have chosen to come and be with us today. Uh, Easter Sunday is the day on the Christian calendar that recognizes and specifically celebrates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? That's why we're here. That's why we're here on Easter is to celebrate that very thing. As Christians, we celebrate that regularly. We don't wait for Easter to do that. That it should be the capstone, and we'll talk about a capstone here in a little bit, about what our faith is, that our God is alive. He is alive forevermore. And as we have already sung about today, there was a dark, cold tomb where the Lord was laid. And in one miraculous breath, a Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave. And now things have forever changed. And I hope they forever change to you. The resurrection of Jesus is Easter celebrated. It is death defeated. It is hope generated. It is lives regenerated. It is this hope and the assurance of Easter that we celebrate here on this kind of Sunday. And that should uh, make a difference to you uh, in this life and beyond uh, in the life to come. The fact is, is that Jesus is alive, and if Jesus is alive, it should make a difference to each of us. If this is true, then the fact that Jesus is alive should make a difference. See, <clears throat> this is the message of Easter and the reality of Christianity, because there's a lot of other world religions that don't believe that the gods that they serve are not alive, they're dead. And we serve a God who is alive, alive forevermore. I asked some questions to some students uh, this week. I was in a crave, uh, we're actually working on this sermon, and I asked this question. I said, why do you think people don't follow Jesus today? And so I'll ask that question of you today. Why do you think people don't follow Jesus? And even a little bit more pointed, for some of you here who are here, why don't you follow Jesus? I know how Easter goes. Easter is one of those Sundays that if we haven't been in a while or we just don't come regularly. Easter is one of those things that people come back to church, and we're thankful that you're here. The question is, if you are here and you're not following Jesus, why do you not follow Jesus? You don't have to answer that out loud, but just think about that. <clears throat> think about that. The answer was not surprising that they actually gave me. They said, most people are afraid of the rules they have to follow. Afraid of the rules that they have to follow. And much of this has come from bad preaching, I'll give you that. There are preachers that take the text and try to manipulate and do behavior modification. And nobody likes to sit under that preaching, right? Nobody wants to sit under behavior modification where that's the, that's the bulk of the sermons that you come from. But it, also, it not, not only comes from bad preaching, it also comes from your enemy himself, Satan himself. Ever since the beginning... He's been twisting and confusing things ever since Genesis 3. <clears throat> We're preaching through Genesis right now here at Refuge. We've taken a, a, a sidebar here, obviously, on Easter. But even from Genesis 3, he starts asking these questions. Did God say this? Did God actually mean this? Is it really true? Maybe he puts these kind of questions in your head. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Is this allegory? Is this some kind of <clears throat> fable? that has come around and there were people who just believe and they just blindly believe things like this. The truth is that people have had varying reactions to Jesus throughout his ministry, even while looking him square in the face. 
I mean, you think about that. If they, look, they looked him square in the face and they had different reactions even to, or actually some of the same reactions that people have today. My friend, David Barkley, before he became a Christian, and thankfully he was before his untimely death soon after that, he used to say, if Jesus would just stick his head through the clouds, then I could believe. I mean, if he would just stick his head through the clouds, I would believe. And he, he was really just wrestling with that. He was like, I don't, it's hard to believe these things. And if I could just see him, then I would believe. And I told him, I said, man, that seems like a good thing. But there were people in Jesus' day that literally had interactions with him, that literally spoke with him, and they didn't believe. So it's not necessarily seeing that causes us to believe. See, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Let me, let me say this to you, just a sidebar. <clears throat> it's important to your faith, Christian. Listen, it's important to your faith that you hear the word preached. It's important that you gather with a church family. It may not be this one, but gather with a church family somewhere so that a man of God can stand up and preach, thus saith the word of God, and for you to hear it on a regular basis. Why? Because it increases your faith. It increases your faith as the word of God is preached and you have heard it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, So Jesus isn't sticking his head through the clouds today to tell you that. But he did send my ugly mug to stand up here and to tell you these things today and to preach to you today. And so you get this face. And that's part of my job. I'm literally sent. I am an ambassador of God himself. That's part of, part of what being a preacher is. I am, an, am an ambassador of God himself to come and to tell you that Jesus loves you. Jesus is alive forevermore. And the resurrection of Jesus should make a difference to you. Amen? Yeah, so we're going to jump into that. Let's dive into scripture here on this Easter, and I'll pray that you will listen with ears, maybe for the first time, to actually hear what the Word of God actually has to say. See, Jesus interacted with a lot of different people while he was here on earth. People just like you and me, people in all, from all walks of life, Jesus interacted with them. People with the same kinds of doubts that you have, the same kinds of earthly desires you have, and, and maybe even some people that are caught up in the same kind of sin that you may find yourself caught up into today. And so I want us to look at a few of Jesus' interactions today, and the first one's going to be from Matthew chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. I'll have this text on the screen uh, that you can follow along with, maybe use your device or whatever you want to use, but I will have the text on the screen. We'll pick up in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, uh, is where we'll start. Here's what the text says. And behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, why do, you ask me about what, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The young man heard this. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Right off the bat in this text, 
verse 16, we see a man who comes to Jesus and he asks him a question and he wants to know, what can I accomplish on my own to have eternal life? Look what it says in verse 16. It says, behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? If you're an underliner or a circler anywhere in your Bible, underline good deed right there because that's what he wants. He's like, what can I do to earn eternal life? What is it that I can do and I can accomplish on my own to, in, to uh, uh, inherit or to get eternal life. A number of years ago, I, at a church that I was at before, I took a, a thing called Evangelism Explosion, went through a class called Evangelism Explosion. Anybody ever done that before? Raise your hand if you've done it. Yeah, I see a few hands that have done that before. So Evangelism Explosion is one of those things that teaches you how to share your faith, literally with strangers. And so we would go out and we would knock on doors and we would begin to ask the two diagnostic questions that come along. And, you know, people had all types of different reactions. And you'd go back and you'd report how things went. And it was really a good discipleship program. It's tough and it's, it's hard sometimes. We saw a lot of fruit come from that. We saw people come to know Jesus through that. We saw a lot of doors slamming our faces through that. There's just all kinds of reactions that people have whenever you knock on their door and you ask them these questions. And so I, I just want to, uh, I'm going to ask you these questions today. Here they are. Here's the first question. When you die, imagine me knocking on your door. <laughs> when you die, do you know for sure you're going to heaven to be with God? Okay? So I'm going to ask you this question. This is your question. You don't have to answer out loud. Just kind of think to yourself. When you die, do you know for sure that you're going to heaven to be with God? Most people say yes. And then you get to the second question. When you get there, if God were to say, why should I let you in, what are you going to say? Think about your answer. You get there to the gates. The gates are open. God kind of steps out. I have no idea if this way it works or not. <laughs> but just imagine with me. God steps out and he's like, hang on there, buckaroo. Why should I let you in? What's your answer going to be? See, from our text, this man believed that he could do some good deeds to get into heaven. He thought, I've checked all the boxes, I'm doing some good stuff, and what else can I do? That was his question. What else can I do? What more good deeds can I do to get into heaven, to be right with God? And this is really where many of us live today. Maybe you live today. Maybe you believe that that's where the, 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 the way this happens and your life lives on a scale. That's kind of we, the way we evaluate one another, right? How much good have you done? How much bad have you done? And so we think, all right, if I've done more good when I die, if the scales tip over here on the good side, y'all are the good side, and uh, if the scales tip over here and you go, okay, well, my scale outweighs the bad, then God will let me in. Or if it maybe it's one of those bad days, it's been a bad day of the week, it's the end of the month, and you ain't making your numbers, and things aren't going well, and somebody's returned a bunch of product, and you're mad and angry, and you know, kicked your dog, and all that stuff, uh, and whatever it is, uh, maybe it weighs over here on the other side, and you've done more bad than good. That, that's y'all, okay? <laughs> My kids are on this side. Uh, uh, or maybe you've done more bad than good. And so you think that God works on some type of scale. Maybe what can I do to tip the scales in my favor? What good can I do, my good deeds, to outweigh the other? How do I best keep my scorecard current? How do I know what's good and what's bad? If I've done the good stuff, does that count for something? Or was this really bad? Was this only three points? Was this like a 12-pointer? Or, you know, is it really, really bad? Or 
How bad is it? But Jesus replied with something unexpected. Here's what he said. He said, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you would enter, if you would enter life, you'd have an eternal life, then keep the commandments. And then there's an interesting exchange that occurred after that. That's what it said. He said to him, the rich man said, well, which ones? Which ones do you want me to keep? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then the young man said to him, I've done all that. I've done that. What else do I lack? Now, you may look at this and go, well, I'm kind of like this guy. I mean, I think I'm in pretty good shape here. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. And I'm not a liar most of the time. You know, I think I've done pretty good here. But elsewhere in the scriptures, we see that Jesus expounds and in explaining this a little bit further, he under, gives a better understanding of what these mean. And what he said later in the scriptures is that whenever we, when I talk about murdering somebody, he said, we talk about murdering somebody in our hearts. When I talk about lust, when I talk about um, uh, committing adultery, that we do that in our hearts. Whenever I lust after somebody, that I've committed adultery in my heart. Or whenever I, I don't necessarily kill somebody, but if I hate you enough, then I've killed you in my mind. He said, this goes much further past just the physical expression of some of these sins. But actually, Jesus didn't go this direction with this guy. He didn't go to, well, let me tell you how much more that means here, because Jesus knew this rich, young ruler was trying to justify himself. He was trying to make it enough for himself. He was trying to justify himself, and so what he could do on his own to be in a right, a right relationship with God, which may be where some of you are today, justifying yourself and trying to do it all on your own. So Jesus goes right to the heart of self-justification in this particular man, and he tells him this, verse 21. He says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, say perfect. perfect. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. See, Jesus knew what was the utmost importance to this man, his possessions. And this rich, young man, unwilling to give up his possessions, walked away from Jesus. Verse 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Alone in his sorrow and dead in his sin." unwilling to give up temporary things for eternal things. In the art and science of biblical interpretation, one must be careful not to take a story like this and apply it where it's intended for everyone. It's where people get themselves in trouble, get themselves in a ditch and go, because the Bible does say this, then it applies to everybody. But that's not necessarily the truth. Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell what they have. Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell what they have and give it all to the poor. That's not what he does in most situations. But Jesus knew that this man wanted to justify himself by simply doing good works and keeping cursory or elementary understanding of the law. But getting to the heart of things, he was unwilling to surrender his life to say, all hail King Jesus. See, this story is intended for some of you today. Listen, this story is intended for some of you today. 
You've got a peripheral desire to know Jesus, one that kind of keeps him at arm length, one that says, if this is Jesus and knowing Jesus, I just want to stay somewhat so I can see him over there, somewhere keep him relatively close, but I don't want to be intimately involved with him. I don't want him intimately involved in my life at all. But you're unwilling to surrender your entire life to him. And that's what Jesus calls us to, surrendering our entire lives to him. Now, you may not be willing to literally walk away from Jesus, but by the life that you've chosen to live, you are walking away from him. You're allowing the fleeting things of this earth, things that will come to an end at some point, to hold on tightly. You're holding on tightly to those things that will literally crumble through your hands like sand. And you're walking away from eternal life in Jesus. Jesus made it very clear in verse 23. Look what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty, say difficulty. Difficulty. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said this later over in Luke chapter 14. He says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's strong words. You don't hate your mama. You don't hate your daddy. You don't hate your brothers and sisters, wife, children, even your own life. You can't be my disciple. And what Jesus is saying here is not that I hate my children or I hate my wife or I hate my parents. What he says is that if I'm going to love and I'm going to follow Jesus, it will seem like hate to hate my family the way that I've got to give my allegiance to Jesus. If I'm going to give my allegiance, if I'm going to follow Jesus and I want eternal life, that I want to move from this life into the next and live with God forever, that it must seem like that nothing else, my parents, my kids, my career, my sports, my nothing can come ahead of my allegiance to Jesus. That's what he says. This ain't me, this ain't me talking. This is the scriptures. This is Jesus talking. This young man, like many of you today, was unwilling to give up temporary things for eternal things. There's a second group that Jesus regularly encountered during his earthly ministry. It's the religious people. In that day, the Bible calls them the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders during Jesus' day. And honestly, this is the group of people that thought they did it all right. Uh, They believed that that they could actually follow the law of Moses and and keep it right. And when we say law, we're referring to all of the law. Now, uh, everybody knows, or at least I have a cursory understanding of the Ten Commandments, right? There's ten of them, and God, God gave them, and he said, hey, this is the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and, and so, the, so let's, let's let this bush, not the, this is not a burning bush, it's just a bush. Uh, let's let this bush be the Ten Commandments, okay? And what happened was the religious leaders during that day is they built kind of barriers and, and, and more levels around those laws. And so they, they did it with good intentions because they were like, I don't want to violate any of these 10, and so I'm going to add some more things around them, and so just to keep me further away from violating those 10 up there. And so they ended up with over 600 laws that they had to follow, 600 laws that they were like, if you break any of these, and you're breaking the commandments, and and you're sinning against God in that way. And, And so they had good intentions, but it was a really bad plan. 
Really, really bad plan. So the religious groups of people, the Pharisees, um, they scoffed at Jesus when he would come and teach them. They, and they ridiculed him about what it was that he had to say because they uh, trusted in their own ability to be keepers of the law and to be right with God. They trusted that they could do it themselves. I can do enough right. I can do the right things. I can keep the law. And I don't necessarily believe that this guy is the Messiah. It was the, literally this group of people that would cut their nose off to spite their face. Or who couldn't see the forest for the trees? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, I mean the Messiah, the prophesied one, the one where they read the scriptures, all the Old Testament was prophesying that this is the one who is to come. The Old Testament, the ones that they preached about, the ones that they stood in the synagogue and talked about, the prophesied one had literally come, standing in their fit, really standing in front of them. They were watching him do amazing things, literally right in front of their face. He healed the lame. He uh, healed the sick. He, made, he, uh, he healed people that their hands were drawn. He raised people from the dead. And why was he doing that? Because he was showing, look, this is what sin has done to the world. And if I'm going to come in and heal somebody, or I'm going to heal a leper, I'm going to bring healing to this situation, this is what it looks like for things to be restored. This is what it looks like when the kingdom is a good place. That uh, sin has caused all of these other things to happen. And I'm going to show you, when sin is not present, this is what this would look like for this person. See what I'm saying? And that's what Jesus was giving them little glimpses of what, this is what the kingdom will look like when everything, when everything is put back in place. Yet still many, and the majority of this group, the religious group, missed it. They were busy guarding the religious rails. The Apostle Paul talked about them in the New Testament. Look what he said in Colossians chapter uh, 2, verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to these things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teaching. Look what it says in verse 23. Look, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So what he's saying is, whenever you try to keep these things, when you try to do these things, you look like you're wise, Look like you're smart. You're the smart guy, right? You look like you're doing the right thing. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Say that with me. Self-made religion. So you look like you're doing it, but what it's doing is promoting your own front brand, your own kind of self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of what? No value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Don't eat. Don't touch, don't handle, don't do this, do this. Keep busy doing religious things. Some of you are really good at that. Some of you are good at that. You're busy doing religious things. The apostle Paul says that these things that you're doing have an appearance of some type of godliness. Some type, an appearance of some type of wisdom, wisdom but many times you're promoting your own self-made religion but it does no good in stopping you and me from sinning and indulging ourselves in our fleshly desires. So this religious group, yet still lost and outside the household of faith, was so busy monitoring the guardrails, monitoring where people were living in and around the edges, that they missed the one who for their entire lifetime had heard would come fulfill the law and be their deliverer. They missed it literally right in front of their face. 
Many of you are too busy with your religious rules and regulations. You've kind of set this thing up where if I do these things, then God's going to be okay with me. If I make it to church enough, if I give enough, if I do these things enough, then God's going to be okay with me. If I get the scales enough, then God's going to be okay with me. If I do enough right, then he's going to be okay with me. And you've set up your own religious thing where you go, I feel good about myself and the way that I'm doing things. And you're setting up this own thing, your own thing in your own mind, and you're missing it. Don't allow your appearance of wisdom or your self-made religion to cause you to miss the risen Savior. The last group that I want to talk about uh, in the scriptures that it, that it says today is from John chapter 8. So if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, that's where I'll be in verse 2. It included the religious Pharisees and a woman that was caught in sin. That's what the text says in John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, so this religious bunch that had been around and trying to, always trying to trick Jesus, always trying to do something, always trying to catch him in something, the, religious scribe, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So here's a woman caught in the act. I mean, literally dragged out of it. So this this woman is, is in bed having sex with a man that's not her husband. And she is literally caught in that act. And these religious leaders have gone in and dragged her out of that situation and dragged her to Jesus. That's what what just happened, okay? And they've dragged her to Jesus. And they said, now look, Jesus, this is what this woman was in the middle of whenever we dragged her out of the house. And the law of Moses says any woman caught in adultery should be stoned to death. And so what would happen is is that a woman caught in adultery is they would bring her out in a public space and put her on the ground. I don't know if they tied her to the ground so she couldn't run or somebody just held her there. I don't exactly know how that worked. But they would take stones like this. And they would take these stones and throw them at her. And they would hit her in the head. They would hit her in the chest. They would hit her in the back. They would hit her in the legs just over and over. People throwing stones. Here, let me have a volunteer. Uh, which harlot do we need to stone? No. Uh, uh, they would t- look, can you imagine that? Taking stones like this and throwing it at a woman until she was dead. That's what they would do. So the Pharisees dragged this woman to Jesus and repeated what the law had said to her and said, Jesus, what do you say we ought to do? And so Jesus bent down on the ground like this, starts drawing. I'm not going to tell you what it says whenever he wrote on the ground. 
Because I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love to know what he wrote on the ground, but I have no idea what he wrote on the ground. You know, there's all kind of speculation about what it could be, but he wrote something on the ground. Uh, and whenever he, um, and he stood up and he looked at the religious leaders and he said, now, whoever you, you without sin, you cast the first stone. So these guys were like, They walked away. Slowly, they all turned their tails and went away. And so Jesus stood up and said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. There's no doubt that there's somebody here literally in this room or maybe you're watching online today and you have felt kind of in the same place as this woman. Maybe in the middle of some egregious sin that you hope nobody finds out about. Maybe you're even embarrassed to be here today because maybe you've been caught in your sin. Maybe you've been exposed in your sin somewhere along the way. And maybe you're wondering, why am I even here in a church service on Easter? And maybe what you've experienced in the past or experienced from some church history that you might have had is people condemning you for your sin. Maybe it's from people here in this church building or maybe it's from other people that you've been around that, that call themselves the people of God. See, shame is a strong emotion, right? I mean, most of us know that. We've been in a position where we've been shamed before about something that we've done or we haven't done or we've been exposed in or we've been caught in and, and people love to shame one another. You know why people love to shame one another? It gets the spotlight off them, bro. If I'm gonna shame you, you know where the light's not? It ain't on me. So shame is one of those things we use against other people so that the spotlight doesn't get turned on ourselves. And like this woman, you may not even know how do you overcome the situation that you're in. You wonder to yourself, how can God love somebody like me? How can God forgive me for what I've done? You live in shame in places like the church gathering. You hope that as people speak the truth that you kind of just drop your head and maybe nobody will see me or the preacher won't look at me or, or nobody will ask me about the situation that most people know that I've found myself in. We don't know how to handle that. See, in our good Southern culture, when somebody talks about things like this and lands a little bit too close to home, what do we do? We just kind of like to buck up a little bit, don't we? Like, if you come at me, bro, like, I'm going to come back at you. Like, get off me. Get off me. And so I, I, if I can be strong enough back to you, you just may slink away from me so I, don't, so I don't have to deal with you calling me out on my own sin. You don't have to deal with you even re, or, or talking about the sin that I find myself in right in the middle of if I come back at you strong enough. And so you may be feeling like I'm coming at you hard and that you need to back off, preacher. Well, listen, I'm not after you today. That's not my intention. I'm not trying to necessarily expose you to a bunch of people or nothing like that. 
But just like Jesus would do, Jesus would speak directly to a situation. He would talk about people's sin, and he wouldn't pull any punches. He's like, look, let me tell you about your sin that you've caught yourself in the middle of, and let me tell you that there is a way out of that sin, and you don't have to live in that place anymore. And that's what I'm here to tell you today. But look, like the rich young ruler, some people walk away. Some people go like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing this. I'm not dealing with this. I'm not going to deal with you church people talking about my sin. Or or some people are like the religious leaders, and you just get angry about it. You want to fight. I'll punch you, bro. Just get it off of me. Move to somebody else. Maybe you're like the woman caught in sin. You go, man, if I just keep my head down, preacher will never know about me. Become defensive, or maybe you're living in shame, or anger, or impatience. Well, here's the good news in the middle of all this. When we talk about Easter Sunday and we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, this is the capstone of the Christian faith. So a capstone is one of those things that if you're building like an archway, think about an archway. Have you seen those where there's, there's stones that are coming up in an archway and at the top there's a stone that fits in the very top? And that very top stone is the thing that holds it all together. And so if you, if you were to take out that capstone, what would happen to all the other stones? They'd just fall and they'd get out of place. So the resurrection is literally the capstone of the Christian faith. If the resurrection is not true, all this crumbles, and it doesn't matter, you're wasting your time, go home, and don't even listen to anything that I say. But if it is true, and it is, then the capstone is the most important thing. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that happens. It holds everything else together. It holds everything else that I preach about, everything else that the scripture talks about. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And if simply, if Jesus simply died on the cross and were dead, uh, none of this would be of any importance. It would be like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or any other world religion that has a dead leader. It would be just like those, and they would be of no significance and no importance. But Jesus is alive. Jesus did resurrect from the dead. Jesus is alive, and it is the thing. Our religion, our trusting in Jesus, Christianity is the thing is held together by the resurrection of Jesus. You can place your faith in Christ and know that everything that Jesus said and everything that he spoke about was true. Now, everybody listen closely. Following Jesus is not a grit your teeth and try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and just do it better, okay? It's not Christianity. That's not Christianity at all. Christianity is the reality that Jesus fulfilled all the law on your place. He did everything right. He did everything perfectly. He fulfilled the law of Moses. He met all the requirements of the Jewish law. And because you and I cannot do it on our own, Jesus became our substitute. Christianity is the beautiful recognition that Jesus paid the full payment for your sin debt on the bloody cross of Calvary. Without the shedding of blood, the scripture says, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away anybody's sin. All that Old Testament stuff that you might read where they sacrificed bulls and goats and chickens and all sorts of things like that, none of that took away any of their sin. All that was pointing to the one Lamb of God who was to come. All of it was pointing to Jesus who was to come. That Jesus' blood is the only thing that covers our sin debt. Christianity is the glorious celebration that Jesus defeated sin and death And his rising from the dead is what we now celebrate on Easter Sunday. Here's what the scripture says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this. For our sake, so put your name right there in our, for Scott's sake, or whatever your name is, if it's not Scott, uh, 
for your sake, your name, for Scott's sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we, put your name right there, might become the righteousness of God. See that? So for Scott's sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, Scott might become the righteousness of God. That's what that means. That's called the great exchange. Jesus takes all my junk. Jesus takes all my sin. I get all his righteousness. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel message. And because of the reality of the resurrection, Jesus has defeated all that, the death and hell and the grave, and Christians have no reason to fear any of these. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, look, it hurts when people die, right? We, Lord knows that this church, we've experienced it enough. And it hurts. The reality is, if they are Christians, we know that from, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. Yes, they are with, moved from this life and on to the next. What a glorious thing that is. And, and so all of us were born into sin. All of us were enslaved to sin. And some of you are still dead in your sin. But Jesus has been raised from the dead with freedom. We sang about that, with our freedom in hand. And the grave is not a place for us Christians to fear any longer. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And so maybe you're like the rich man that we talked about in the first part of this text. And you can't do it and you just, are, you just can't do what it is that they're calling. I can't be perfect. I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. And walk, you've been walked away all your life. You've been walking away because you think, I've got to follow all these rules and I just can't do it. Or maybe you're like the Pharisees and you, you think you're doing it all right, but you're missing the essence of Christianity. You're just religious and you're going through a bunch of religious hum, mumbo jumbo left and right, but you're missing the fact that the Savior has come to rescue you from your sin. Or maybe you're like the woman caught in adultery. You think, I could never live up to this. I don't even belong here. And I have no chance because of the life I live to be perfect. Christianity is not like a Nike commercial, a religion that says, just do it. You know what Christianity is? Christianity is this. Tetelestai, that's what that word is. Tetelestai means it is finished. This is not about you having to do stuff. That means Jesus has accomplished it already on your behalf. It's not like you have to do more to get up to, you don't have to climb the ladder to get to God. It means it is finished. Jesus has accomplished everything on your behalf. He lived the sinless life that God calls us to live. He died a death that we deserve to die and he is raised from the dead and he ever is ever interceding on our behalf. That is the, that it, that's what it means to say that it is finished. Jesus has done for you what you can never do for yourself. Look, the vacant tomb reminds us that God has the ability to conquer on our behalf what we could never conquer on our own. That thing that you're fighting with, that sin that you can't seem to overcome, Jesus, by his resurrection, has conquered sin, that sin, on your behalf. He has done it on your behalf. The last thing that Jesus said to those listening to him after his encounter with the rich young ruler is this. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And it's not only possible, it's provided because of what we celebrate at Easter, the death, burial, and praise God, the resurrection of Jesus. What once seemed impossible is, now on, is not only possible, but it's done. Sing this with me. 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The crucified Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. But anyone, including you today, can come through the Father through Jesus and have all your sins wiped away. Jesus said this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give them life and that they might have it abundantly. Now, back to our diagnostic questions that I asked you in the beginning. When you die, do you know for sure that you're going to be with God? When you get there, if God says, why should I let you in? Hang on. Why should I let you in? What are you going to say? Well, tell me, preacher. What am I supposed to say, preacher? How do I have eternal life? How do I know this thing that you're talking about? Here's two things. Two things. Repent and believe. Repent. And believe, repent says, hey, I recognize that I've sinned. All of us, I think, are old enough to recognize that we sin, right? I mean, we're not that dumb. We, we recognize that we sin. And so what our sin does is a sin not only against one another, but it's a sin against God. And so everything that we do, the scripture says, one sin will keep us from, from uh, being in relationship with God. And so when we, and we commit may, many more than those, so I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I can't save myself, and this is not some scale that you're going to grade me on one day. And I want to repent of my sin. Repent means that I'm going to turn away from my sin. I don't want to keep doing that anymore. I don't want to keep living the same way. I don't want to keep going down the same path that I'm on. I recognize that I'm probably going to go to hell if I die tonight. Repent, go... I've sinned against you, God. Forgive me, right? That's repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe what? Believe the gospel. Believe that, God, that Jesus is God the Son, that he came and lived the sinless life that you could never live, that he died on a cross to cover your sin debt, that the shedding of his blood covers your sin debt, and God raised him from the dead three days later. Scripture says if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and he raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what the Scripture says. It's that simple. It's so scandalous. It's simple. And so we want to give you that opportunity today. Preacher, you don't know the depth of my sin. You don't know the terrible things I've done. You don't know how bad I really am. Jesus knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he's the one that loves you the most. He knows. He still loves you enough. God so loved the world, so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Today, on Easter, repent, believe, come to Jesus. Let me pray for us.